Hi, ABC family. My name is Carrie, and we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Before we get started with today's message, we have a few things that you should know about. Our Celebrate Recovery fall launch is happening this Thursday, September 8th at 6 p.m. Join us for a tri-tip barbecue and a launch into our fall season. We'd love to have you join us. We also have our Connections class coming up. If you're new to ABC, or even if you've been here for a little while, we'd love to have you join us. This is a five-week class that covers some of the ABC values and covers just what we're all about. You'll meet some of our pastors and our staff, and as well as others who are new to ABC, and we'd love to have you join us. The class begins Sunday, September 11th at 9 a.m. And now, take it away, Jake. Well, hey, thank you for watching. Uh, today, we're turning uh, a corner out of the series on the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been in for the last uh, little while, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're getting into the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, and our series is going to be called The Great Commission, uh, which is where we're going to really see some things that Jesus is now doing. So we've seen some of his teaching, we've seen the kingdom in word, and now we're turning the page um, into this new mini-series to see the things that he's doing and the things that he's calling his followers to do. So I'm going to throw this graph back up on the screen. If you remember way back a few months ago um, when we were in Matthew chapter 4, talking about the kingdom of God, we looked forward and realized that the next handful of chapters in Matthew are broken into these two sections. Matthew 5 through 7 was the kingdom in word. So that was the teaching of Jesus. And then Matthew 8 and 9, we're going to see the kingdom in deed. That is the actions, the doings of Jesus. And both of these are kind of bookended by a really almost identical summary statement uh, it happens in Matthew 4:23, and then you see it again in Matthew 9:35. The statement says this: Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That is almost word for word in both Matthew 4:23 and then again in 9:35. So right here, we're taking that shift from the teaching of Jesus to some of his works. And today, we're going to highlight three signs and wonders that Jesus is going to perform. It's the first three that Matthew documents, and therefore, the first three miracles of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 8, it's 17 verses. We're going to throw those up on the screen as well. Um, and it's, it's long, uh, but I'm going to read straight through it because I want us to feel the way it flows, the way it turns um, as we see these three stories play out. So Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, 
Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Father, as we read your word right now and we remember these stories, I just pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive them in a fresh way today. I pray you would stir our love for you, our affection for you, to see you as as good and as true and as beautiful as you truly are. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, thank you for uh, for reading through that with me. Um, now, I, I know this is kind of a goofy thing to say, but I had always wanted a surprise birthday party, um, and I never had one until April 13th, 2022. Here's how it happened. My wife and I had planned dinner, and I thought I was driving the plans, so she was like sneaky brilliant in figuring out how to make me feel like I was making the plans. Um, so I made the plan not super far in advance, but I said, we're going to go up to Taste in Paso. It's one of my favorite restaurants. Um, I like getting the little sliders and the mac and cheese, and it's just fantastic. So I said, we're going to go to Taste. It's just going to be a sweet date or just a really low-key night. So eventually we make our way up to Paso. Uh, we wait outside the restaurant. We get let in. We're making our way to our table. And as I'm walking to what I thought was our table, I turn over and I see over on the side of the restaurant, one of my best friends, um, I just see him lock eyes with me and I thought, oh, that's so cool, he's here, awesome. Well, I hope he enjoys his dinner. And then the next like split second, I see one of my other best friends and his wife, they both kind of turn around. Um, and I thought, oh, that's crazy too. That's so awesome that they're here. I know that they, um, they're good friends, but they're not necessarily double date sort of friends. Like we're more of the bridge friend in that friendship. So I was surprised to see them there on a double date. But I was like, that's fine, that's cool. And then what happened is my third, my other of my three best friends, I see him turn his head around and you know, his wife kind of pokes out her head behind his. And so then I look at all of them and my initial reaction was so hurt. I was not happy or excited. I was so hurt because in a split second, I thought, how could they do this? My three best friends went to my favorite restaurant on my birthday and they didn't even invite me. I was like, Nikki, did you know about this? Like all of this happening within like two seconds in my brain, I like wrote this whole story for myself, like had this whole picture I was seeing in like two seconds. Uh, shows you how secure I am in my friendships, I guess. And then finally, as we're walking over there, it finally clicks and I'm like, oh no, I can't believe it. And I was so impressed with my wife. It's so funny though, because I had this idea of what was happening and then just 
in an instant, the whole thing was reframed. So those little pieces I was trying to put together, it was all reframed and it changed the whole picture for me. And I say that because I think these are the best kinds of moments when something is immediately reframed for you and you see it completely different. When the story, uh, the script is broken and changed and then the whole story changes. Whether you're reading the best new book or you're watching the best new show, it's that moment where you just think, oh, okay, I thought it was gonna look like this. I thought the picture looked like this, but I guess it looks like this. I didn't see how these pieces were gonna come together, but now they go like this to form the whole picture and that's completely different. I think these are the best moments in life too like with the real things. Maybe the legacy of your family was, well, they got a divorce, they got a divorce, they got a divorce, but I'm still married, right? That's the best kind of rewriting of a script, reframing of the picture. Or there's no reason you should have afforded or had the time to go to college, but you did, you figured it out. Or the doctor said you were gonna have six months to live and it's been 10 years. These are the best stories. Moments when you have pieces of a picture inside a certain frame and you're struggling to make sense out of any of it, but then something happens to reframe the whole thing and the whole picture shifts and changes and you see it as it rightly is. It's when it breaks the script and it changes the whole story. I say that because in Matthew 8 right here in these 17 verses, I think Jesus did that in a very profound, multi-layered way. So a few different layers to this and we'll explain. But basically, these are three portraits of God's power. Three stories, three scenes, like think of them as little vignettes of God's power and his goodness. But ultimately, it's one picture. There's one story happening here. So first scene, first portrait of God's power is the leper. It's four verses, right? But think of everything that Matthew didn't say or the things that he didn't even see. Imagine that you're the guy, you're the leper. It says that great crowds were following Jesus. So here's what that meant for you. If the crowd was here and Jesus is here on the mountain, on the hillside, you know, preaching to them and they're here, that means that you had to be over here because by ceremonial law, you couldn't be within six feet of anybody else. So as people kept coming, you would have to keep backing up because there wasn't six feet of space within the crowd. So you had to keep getting further back away from the people. You couldn't be within six feet of another person. Fill in your own COVID joke there if you want to. I won't do it for you. You had to be 150 feet if the wind was blowing, um, which is wild. So at some point now, Jesus finishes his teaching. He comes down from the hillside and you think maybe this is your chance. Maybe you can get to him while keeping enough distance between people to approach him quietly and discreetly. But more than likely, that's not gonna work. More than likely, you're gonna have to do what you always had to do every time you went to the market or the temple or the well. You were gonna have to walk up to people and as you got within earshot of them, you'd have to yell at the top of your lungs, unclean, unclean, unclean and you'd walk through yelling that, just watching as the people in front of you would split like the Red Sea, and you could just quickly go about your business and do your things, once again, feeling like the most alone human being in the world. To be a leper was to be the walking dead. And I'm not just being dramatic in that. Literally by Mosaic law, the only thing more ceremonially unclean than a leper was an actual dead body. That's how low a, a person with leprosy was on the scale of cleanliness. Physically, it was awful. 
It was a skin disease with constant open sores and infection, exposed tissue, and even bone. But it was also a nerve thing, especially at the end of your fingertips. So oftentimes you'd end up losing your fingers or your hands because your body didn't know how to tell your brain that knives are sharp and that the ground is hard and that fire is hot. So people would even go blind from washing their face day after day in scalding hot water without realizing it, eventually that increasingly blurry vision day after day would just go dark. So it should go without saying that work wasn't an option. So think about the financial implication as well. Because even if you could do the work physically, which you probably couldn't, you still couldn't be around anybody and remote jobs weren't a thing yet. So not only were you diseased, but you were poor. The only reason you would go to the market or the temple in the first place was to beg from some people who might have been trying to act holy, been trying to impress God. But still, all of that said, the worst part was not the financial poverty and it wasn't even necessarily the physical disease. The worst part was the fact that as you walked into the market week after week, yelling unclean at the top of your lungs, you would watch as half the people looked away in horror and half the people just pretended you didn't exist. And so you wouldn't know whether to feel like a monster or like a ghost. It's the fact that Sabbath after Sabbath, you would sit just outside the temple walls where every faithful Jew you knew from childhood would take the long way around you as they stepped closer to the presence of God than you would ever be allowed to go. Lepers weren't dead yet, but to say that you were living would be generous. But think about this scene. So you shout your way through the crowd like you always did. And the people scatter in disgust and fear like they always did. But you make your way closer and closer to Jesus. And at some point, I'm sure he realizes, he turns around probably and realizes that someone's coming up to him. There's sort of a commotion happening. And you're yelling, unclean, unclean. And finally you get close enough so that the disciples behind Jesus sort of scatter back and and give space. But the wildest thing happens that never happened before. As they're moving and giving space and watching out for you, Jesus doesn't move. He just stands right there. Just stands right there and waits for you to come. So you come and you do the only thing you can think to do. You fall on your face. Luke says he falls on his face and you just beg, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What an interesting sentence. If you will, you can. In other words, I know you can. I know you can do it. Your capability is not the question. I'm aware of what you can do. I know that you can do it. My question, the cry of my heart is, are you good enough to do it for me? Are you actually good enough to do it for me? Are you true enough? Are you kind enough to do it for me? And then we can't be sure exactly what this moment looked like, but I just have to imagine that as you're begging on the ground, I bet you probably still left six feet between you and Jesus because you're being bold and audacious, but you didn't want to miss your shot on getting healed because of a technicality. You probably still wanted to respect the space and not put him in, in harm's way. And I just imagine Jesus with the kindest, most gracious eyes, hearing your pleas and just starting to close that gap from six feet to five feet, five feet to four feet to three feet, two, one. 
then he stretches out his hand and he touches you. He says, I will be clean. Jesus could have easily healed him without touching him. He did that plenty of times. We're going to see through the rest of Matthew. He could heal someone with a word. He could heal someone with a look. But can you just imagine, after who knows how long since feeling the touch of another human being, just what this meant? Because he wasn't just healing the body in this moment. He was physically touching him, healing the soul, healing the emotional turmoil, healing the hurt. You're saying, Jesus, I know you can, but are you good enough? Are you truly kind enough? Are you actually everything that I hope you are? If you will, you can. And Jesus, with one touch, just says, of course I can. Of course I will. And immediately he's healed. Scripture says immediately. And in classic Jesus fashion, then he tells him to be quiet about it except to go to the temple and offer the usual sacrifice, the one that Moses commanded, which is so fascinating because Jesus is saying, even now, those ritual sacrifices and laws, they exist to testify about me. So go, do that, show them what just happened. That was the leper. The first portrait of God's power here. The next scene, the next story, the next portrait is uh, what we'll call the Gentile. I'll explain why we're just going to call them the Gentile. But they part ways, uh, Jesus and the leper. Jesus goes to Capernaum, and then a centurion comes up to him and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So this scene is full, chock full of surprises. First, it's surprising that a centurion would approach a Jewish rabbi. So being a centurion, it means that he was a commander in the Roman military, which guaranteed he was ethnically not Jewish. So he was what we call a Gentile, what scripture calls a Gentile. So according to Jews, he was the wrong race and he wore the wrong uniform to have anything to do with God or God's people or the things of God. His people, Gentile Roman military, his people were the reason that life was miserable for the Jewish people. That's surprising. It's surprising that he calls Jesus Lord instead of calling him rabbi or teacher. In the rest of the gospels, usually when a non-Jewish person would address Jesus, they would call him rabbi or teacher. And the reason is because that's like the baseline minimum level of respect that they had to show to that person just culturally. Like you're not going to go up and call someone Lord. You're going to call them rabbi or teacher. That's what they were supposed to be called. So it was weird that the centurion called him Lord. It's unusual that the centurion was asking for healing for his servant or slave, honestly. Most people in his position would probably just let their slave die. There wasn't a lot of um, personal emotional crossover in that kind of relationship. Um, so he, he asks for healing for this slave that most people wouldn't have even cared about. Aristotle, the dominating sentiment of the day, he said a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. That would have been the general sentiment in that culture. But it's just an interesting tip of the hat to something about this guy's character. You see, some level of depth, some level of, uh, of almost God-honoring love and connection that this ruling class person had for, had for his servant slave. It's interesting. 
then the exchange itself is super weird. Jesus hears that he needs help and Jesus says, okay, I'll come and heal him. And the guy responds, no, don't do that. You don't have to come into my house. And it's almost like the centurion is trying to protect Jesus. Like he understands, Jesus, this is a risk. You are a Jewish rabbi. We are an unclean Gentile people. It's a huge risk for you spiritually, socially, culturally, for you to even set foot in my house. Jesus, don't take that kind of risk. You don't have to do that for me. And you have to appreciate that kind of consideration and self-awareness. And then he lays out, and this is wildly surprising, because he lays out this idea that's all about authority. The centurion does. He says, Jesus, I know what you're capable of. You don't even need to come over. I get how this works. I'm a man under authority and I have people under my own authority. I can say to this one, go do that. And he does it. I know what it's like to give commands and things change and people move and things happen. And then as he's saying that, the centurion, he just becomes the most unlikely candidate to preach the power of God and God's word. You would never expect this person to say such deeply true things. Like we all know that time in a movie or a story where the, the most weird kind of sidelined character comes into the scene and they say the little nugget of truth that like changes and explains the whole movie, right? Like this centurion, the most least likely suspect, comes in and preaches the power of God. He says, just say the word and he'll be healed. Just say the word, I know it. There was just something in him that clicked. And it's so fascinating to me how God may have been working in his heart and his mind, giving him like knowledge of true things that he, there's no reason he should have known that or believed that, but he did. And we just, man, we would preach that all day and affirm that. Like, Jesus, I get how this works. He says, I can send men into battle with the sound of my voice. I say the word and they go. But Jesus, you can speak directly to sickness and it has to leave the body. You can speak directly to the darkness and the void and it has to light up. You say, let there be, and there is. You say, go, and it goes, no matter what it is. You say, stop, and it stops. You're gonna tell storms to chill and they're done. You tell demons to leave and they run for their lives. You say, live, and dry bones start rattling back to life in resurrection. You can tell addiction to break and it has to break. You tell chains to fall and they fall crashing to the ground. Jesus, just say, the word, and the same word as the spirit of God was hovering over the waters that just spoke into nothingness and created everything. It's like, well, I don't think the centurion was thinking that or, or would articulate that, but what he said reflects that deep, deep truth. He was talking to the one who spoke and everything came into creation. Jesus, just say the word. And then something really special happens. It says that Jesus is amazed at his faith. Do you realize today that it's possible to have faith that amazes Jesus? You can have a kind of belief and dependence that moves the heart of God. That's inspiring to me. And Jesus responds and he says, wow, you have more faith than any Jew I know. In fact, a lot of Jews who think they're faithful to God, they're gonna miss the kingdom altogether. And he says this piercing condemnation. We don't have time to dive into it, but it's wild. He basically says, okay, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. You're totally right. I just need to say the word and it's done. 
and the servant was healed at that very moment. That's picture number two, the Gentile. Then we move to picture number three. The third scene, they come to Peter's house from there. And Peter's wife's mom is sick with a high fever, the kind that you probably don't come back from. Luke's account says that they appealed to Jesus uh, for her to heal her. Matthew doesn't say anything. It just says that Jesus came in and he said he was going to heal her. But then apparently Jesus does two things. According to Matthew, he touched her hand. And according to Luke, he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. Which you just have to love those scenes where Jesus is rebuking an inanimate thing, saying, okay, you're done. Okay, fever, stop fevering. You're done. You got to leave. Don't you wish you could have seen that like, and, and heard that? I just wonder, was it loud and, and boisterous or was it calm and quiet? Either way, once again, he speaks directly to sickness. And in the blink of an eye, it says immediately, in the blink of an eye, her temperature drops back down and rebalances. Her sweat stops completely. She feels strength reinfused into her muscles. Her eyes open wide. Electrolytes start coursing back through her body. And immediately, this is hilarious, she pops out of her bed and she's like, oh, what can I get you? Oh, here, sit down, sit down. Did anybody get you anything to drink yet? You doing okay? She immediately starts serving them. From the brink of death, to serving them in the blink of an eye. Okay, so there's these three pictures of God's power, three portraits, three framed stories. One is where the leper gets healed. The next one is where the Gentile centurion gets, his servant gets healed, and then Peter's mother-in-law gets healed. Three quick stories, but the thing is, there's really one story happening. There's really one picture being painted for us. So first, we need to understand, to understand that, we need to understand that miracles get old. Every miracle gets old. The leper died eventually, the servant died, and Peter's mother-in-law died. She could have gotten another fever for all we know. The miracles get old, and I think that's why we call them signs and wonders ultimately, is because signs point to something else. So the purpose of these things happening wasn't so that, um, you could just sit and look at it and be marveled at it, but you could see what it points to, right? I think there's something here that Matthew is trying to point to. So why does he line up these stories the way that he does? Um, and to understand a bit more about Matthew, Matthew writes this gospel in, it, it's beautiful, it's poetic, it's very Jewish in the sense that it's riddled with Old Testament references and very, um, Illusions that need a lot of Jewish context. So you need to understand a bit about Judaism to reap the full, you know, depth of what Matthew's saying. And it's and it's really intentional. It's got this um, this sort of intentional overarching story of okay, there's a new kingdom, there's a new king, there's a new way of doing life with God. And so as he does that, he's building this case that Jesus is the ultimate king and he's revealing a new kingdom. So if you're a first century Jew reading Matthew, basically, you're going to have all these bells and sparks going off all the time as you're reading through him. You say, oh, that's from Isaiah, but it really means this. Oh, that's from the Mosaic Law, but oh, now it makes sense. And the thing, as you read these three stories back to back to back, the first three miracles that Matthew decides to, to list out in his gospel, I can guarantee that one thing would come to mind, and that thing is the temple. So the Jewish temple. Let me throw this graphic up on the screen. Um, 
And here it is, I know you're like, wow, that is really, really good. That's a great, that's a really great drawing. I know, I know. Um, I did, I just did it. Um, it was free, it's all freehand. I didn't, I didn't trace it or anything. So this is, okay, this is a drawing of the temple. I'm sorry, so dumb. Um, I did note simplified there at the bottom. It didn't look just like this. But basically, if you look at the, the first century Jewish temple, um, look at the very like most central area is where the Holy of Holies was. And then right out from that, I didn't label that part, but there's, we call it the holy place where priests would do their ministry and then where Jewish men were allowed to go right out of there. And then one step further removed from that, you see I labeled it the court of women. So that was where Jewish women could go, but they couldn't go any further. And then one wall out from that is what they called the court of the Gentiles. So these are for Gentiles who converted to Judaism, so they wanted to go to the temple, but because they were Gentiles, they weren't ethnic Jews, they couldn't go any further than that. And then the most outer wall um, would keep basically everybody else from entering in. So anybody ceremonially unclean could not go past the outer wall. So if you're entering the temple, I just want you to understand this sequence of, um, of walls and barriers. You'd first come to the outer wall you'd have to think, if you're ceremonially unclean, I can't go any further. I can't breach this entry. And then you'd come to the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Gentile convert to Judaism and you were ceremonially clean to go in there, that's as far as you could ever go still. You couldn't get any closer to the manifest presence of God. And then you'd come to the court of the women, which just hurts to think about. And if you were a woman, a Jewish ceremonially clean woman, you could go that far, but you couldn't go any further. Jen Wilkin writes it this way, that when Matthew aligns these stories, he does so from an outward to inward perspective, indicating that Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the temple in bodily form, the one who, as John would say, has tabernacled among us, has opened the way, has leveled the field, restoring those who have been considered subhuman to full humanity and grants them access. Psalm 147 verse 2 said that the Lord would gather the outcasts of Israel and bring them together and bring them in. And that's what he's doing right here, right now. So now see what this, this sequence of stories is saying. It's saying, okay, now the lepers, the Gentiles, and the women can wander inside past the walls and the boundaries that have always kept them at arm's length, and they can enter into the very presence of God, where the new true high priest, as Hebrew says, has sprinkled his own blood as the foundation for a new and better covenant. I'm reframing everything. You had these pieces of the picture. You thought it was going this way. Lepers, Gentiles, women, they had their script handed to them. And it was never going to go like this. That was as far as they could ever go. Leopard, the outer wall, that's it for you. Gentile, the inner court, that's it for you. Women, you can't go any further than this right here. Those are the pieces of the picture for you. And you can never do anything about it. That, it's framed. It's done. And Jesus breaks the script, he reframes it, he takes the pieces and reframes the whole thing. And Matthew, he lines up this insane sequence of miracles to show that Jesus is fulfilling and reframing and reshaping the whole story of God and his people. 
the outcasts of Israel come on in. It's a new system, it's a new way, it's a new family of God. I know you've been kept at arm's length for so long, but everything is changing. Those walls are down. I'm the new temple, as John says. He tabernacled among us. As Hebrews says, he is the temple in bodily form. That's, that's me, Jesus. So, see these signs and these wonders, they get old. Uh, he didn't end all leprosy. Fevers could come back. All these three people died. Signs and wonders get old, but this miracle... This will never, ever get old. The miracle of God's grace, the miracle of Jesus stepping in and completely reframing the whole picture, completely breaking the script and rewriting the whole story, that miracle will never get old. Everything points to this, that Jesus would come and he would minister to us as the true high priest, that he would enter into the holy of holies where any and all can come by his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats that year after year could never make perfect the people of God. We could come by the blood of Jesus and receive forgiveness. Every sign and every wonder points to the miracle of the gospel. I'm just going to close with reading Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. I'm going to pray. And my prayer is just that you would be refreshed by the miracle of the gospel. That your heart would be inclined just to see Jesus as, as good and as beautiful as he is. There are those three kind of big ideas just in the world of philosophy. We're all trying to find what is good, what is true, and what is beautiful. Some have even said that as culture loses its appetite for the beautiful, then it also loses its hunger for what is good and what is true. And for so many people in our world, we just need to understand just how beautiful the story of Jesus is. And this, my goodness, the healing of the leper, the healing of the Gentile and the woman, breaking the script, tearing down the walls that kept them out and inviting them in. Oh, Jesus is so good and so beautiful and so true. Let me read Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He says he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I just want you to recognize, what, what do you not have in Christ? Nothing. You have everything. We have everything we could ever want in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Would you just be refreshed, be renewed in that, in that beauty of the gospel today? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, your unconditional, steadfast, beautiful love for us. Jesus, thanks for um, rewriting the, the story, for reframing the picture, for these three portraits of your power, these three scenes where we can look and just see, wow, how good, how beautiful, how faithful, how powerful is our Jesus. You're incredible. 
you can do things no one else can do. Uh, you're faithful to us. You love us to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. So we just, once again, we confess you're the Lord. I pray that what we've said and what we've thought on today would bring you honor, would bring a smile to your face, and would be pleasing to you. I pray that we would be refreshed by just how good, just how beautiful the gospel story is. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.